Please turn with you now in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have spoken in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him, who after he has killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And not one of them is forgotten before God. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man also will confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Now when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Skipping down now to verse 35. Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him obediently. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you, he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Then Peter said to him, Lord, do you speak this parable to us or to all? And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise servant? whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and be drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him. And at an hour when he is not aware, and will cast him, cut him in two, and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant who knew his master's will, and did not prepare himself, or do according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know, yet committed things deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required, and to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. I came to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. 
But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five in one house will be divided, three against two, and two against three. Father will be divided against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And he said to the multitudes, Whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say, A shower is coming, and so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say there will be hot weather, and there is. Hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it you do not discern this time? Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we again turn to you and ask that you would grant us understanding into this, yes, difficult and somewhat complex portion of your word. Lord, we know that every last one of your words that you have ever uttered and ever granted to men, these are important, and not one of them should ever fall to the ground. But, Lord, we sense a particular importance and relevance for these things, and how we pray, Lord, that you'd guide us in truth in them. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we return now to this latter portion in Luke chapter 12, and particularly verses 49 to 53. And in this little section, Jesus wants to correct a certain misunderstanding that may have arisen in the heart of his disciples. The immediate context, as I read, is verse 48. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few, for everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required, and to whom much has been committed of him they will ask the more. So who is Jesus speaking of when he says those to whom have been given, those who have something, right? Those who have been given, and surely that means then those who have heard his words, or perhaps the disciples. And perhaps then he is following up on Peter's question in verse 41. You see this long section of as Jesus is speaking to them, and it's interrupted. I, I, I actually don't like um, the words of Christ in red. It's hard to avoid. Uh, it puts an unnecessary dichotomy as if these were only the words of the Holy Spirit and, and not the others. Uh, but they're in my Bible, as with most of yours. And you see all this red. And there in verse 41, there's this interruption with, from Peter. And he asks this question, Lord, do you speak this parable to us? Again, the other words are in italics, they're not there in the original, or to all? In other words, this doesn't apply to us, does it? This this sense that I'm getting that things are going to be difficult and uncertain, and that certainly doesn't apply to us, does it? And the more general attitude behind the question seems to be something very uh, pervasive with, with Peter, that things are going to go smoothly for us disciples, Right? as we prepare to be part of your administration and the coming earthly government. Well, it's at this point that Jesus pronounced in in verse 51, do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? Do you think that? Is is that what's going in your minds, that you think that I've come to bring peace on earth? You might be excused, by the way, if if you thought that was the case, because that's what all the prophets seem to say. 
When Isaiah speaks of the coming Messiah, he very, very clearly says that he's coming. He's, in fact, the this Prince of Peace that is coming. And, and Luke himself records the words of the angels in Luke 2. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. You would be excused if you thought that Jesus came to bring peace. But Jesus goes on to say, I tell you not at all, but rather division. And we say, how can we put these two things together? How? Well, quite simply, because there is a big difference between peace with God and peace with men. A huge difference. And in this lifetime, in this world, it is impossible to have both. You must choose one or the other. You must choose whether you're going to have peace with God or peace with men. Is that not what Jesus has been saying throughout the whole chapter? Again, verse 4, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. He says that because those who would be at peace with God cannot possibly be at peace with all men in this world. And we, we think, what was Jesus himself about to undergo? Was it peace on earth? Hardly. Not peace with men. No, it was the cross as he was nailed there by the men in opposition to him. And what was the world about to enter into even after that, after the resurrection? Was it a time of perfect peace? No, we look back at that at this time of the upheaval in the Roman Empire as the church spreads and they are persecuted, and God's people have difficulty, and the world indeed endures these, these uh, divisions because that's what's going to happen. And as Jesus says, this same thing is going to be the case for his people. Sometimes even within a single family, there will be division because Christ came. Because Christ came, and because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, there will be division. So the title of the sermon is Division on Earth. And the three points are a cross for Jesus, fire for the world, and thirdly, division for God's people. A cross for Jesus, fire for the world, and division for God's people. So first, a cross for Jesus, as we read in verse 50. But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. Now, what is he talking about when he, he speaks of this baptism? First of all, we, we know that, as John the Baptist himself said, what need do, do you have to be baptized? Baptism, of course, is a picture of being washed. It is a, a picture of being given the Holy Spirit. It is a picture of being united to Christ, what, what need does Christ himself, who is sinless and who is filled with the Holy Spirit, of course, without measure, what need does he have to be baptized? Well, clearly he's speaking of something else than that. I have a baptism, and it is speaking of himself. This is reflexive. This is passive. I have a baptism to be baptized with. Something is going to happen to Jesus. And he says, how distressed I am till it's accomplished. Now, that's our first clue. Our first clue, what he's talking about, is that word accomplish. It's the same thing as 
the word, well, in a different form of it is finished. And he says, in the completion of his time on the cross, as his great work is finished, he says, it is finished. It is accomplished. The thing of which I was sent to do, this great work, the great atoning sacrifice, and we we must not ever forget that this is what Christ came to do. Because we, we know that so many problems and so many false teachings arise when people forget what Jesus came to do. And sometimes I think they think that Jesus came to bring peace on earth. Sometimes I think that, that they thought that Jesus came to tr- merely transform the culture of, of, his, of his land in some, in some entirely easygoing, naturalistic sort of way. That's not what he came to do. The thing that he was looking forward to accomplishing, the thing of which he declares it is finished, is not when he opens a, a, a coffee house and says it is, it is finished. It is when he is done on the cross and he has paid for the sins of his people, the innocent lamb of God that was slain. Then he says it is finished. He's speaking about his mission. He's speaking about the cross. And what about this language? Why, why then using the language of baptism? Why doesn't he just say what he means here? Well, because in a sense it is a baptism. And that's the way he refers to it elsewhere in Matthew. And it seems like, by the way, a common mistake. It wasn't just the disciples. Sometimes it's the disciples' mother. And in Matthew twenty twenty one, he said to her, as James and the, the mother of James and John comes and asks this favor, And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on the left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm able to drink? uh, I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? And he said to him, we are able So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and my left hand is not mine to give, but for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. Now to briefly explain what he's saying. When these people come and say, we want a place in your administration, we want to be your, your, your most honored advisors, we want to have this place of honor, he says, you don't understand the nature of what's going on. You think that I'm going to establish my earthly kingdom, and then there's going to be perfect peace in this land, the Romans are going to be kicked out, there's no, not going to be any problem, and we're all going to assume our places of honor in this world. You're quite wrong. In fact, I ask you, do you really think that you're able to be baptized by the, in the same way that I'm about to? Because he's speaking of his own baptism by fire as he endures the wrath of God. And he knows good and well that they cannot endure that baptism. He alone is going to tread that. He, he alone is going to endure that and drink that cup of the wrath of God. And so he speaks of this baptism He was baptized. He was baptized for sin, not his own, you see, but the sin of God's people that was laid upon him. And it speaks of the purging. It speaks of the cleansing of the fire, the fire of God's wrath that came down on Christ. And indeed, all the sin that he bore, he wore it as a coat. He put it on him as a robe. Like you remember the robes in Zechariah chapter 3. He was Joshua, the high priest, representing the people of God, was clothed in filthy robes. 
And all we saw then was somehow the robes were taken off. The filth the filthy is still there. And he was given some clean robe. But later we're, we come to understand what happened to that filthy robe. That Jesus put it on. And then he endured the wrath of God that inevitably is going to fall upon sin. And that's the baptism by which he was baptized. And he was distressed. He says, how distressed I am until it is accomplished because he has come for this. He knows it is coming. We all know, don't we, when we face some great task that is coming upon us. There comes a time in which as we, we look in the future and we see this looming and it's coming larger, we just wish it was it was done. Jesus says, how distressed, how hard-pressed I am until this baptism is accomplished. This, ladies and gentlemen, is what lay in the future for Jesus Christ. Peter looks out in the future. He sees the Messiah and says, I see a future of wonderful peace and, 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 and honor for myself. And where the world is going to be subdued before our feet... And I will take my place of honor next to Christ in the world. Jesus looks out into the future and he sees the cross. Because that's what lay ahead for him in this world. Where he was about to be betrayed by one of his own. Within his own circle there would be that division. Where he was about to then be falsely accused by false witnesses of his own people. And then condemned by his own people. And handed over to these wicked pagan people where he would again be unjustly condemned and nailed to the cross. That's what lay in the future for Christ. If that is the case for him, why do we expect peace? Well, if that's the case for Jesus himself, if that's what was going to, there was going to be a cross for him, what about for the the world? That's our second point. There's going to be fire for the the world. That's that's what's in the, the world's future. Verse 49, I came to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. Now there again we have to ask, what kind of fire is Jesus wishing that was already kindled? And as in so many things, he's speaking in in double terms, I think. And there's two references. As all, so many of those Old Testament prophecies had two different fulfillments. One with the, the cross and later at the final day, the day of judgment. One with the first coming, the other with the second coming. And so with respect to the future, the far off future, certainly then the judgment, what is going to happen in this world? It's going to be baptized in a different way with fire. Luke three sixteen, John answered saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one is one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, some think that those two subjects are exactly the same and that the fire is describing the way in which the Holy Spirit will be baptizing us. But look at what, the, the, what happens in the next verse. In the very next verse, it defines it. Verse 17, his winnowing fan is in his, 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 fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat, the wheat into his barn. But what's going to happen on the other hand? But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. See, he's speaking about two very different subjects, the believers and the unbelievers. And he is in different senses going to baptize them both. And both indeed through the Holy Spirit. But the outcomes and the intents are very different. 
With his own people, the believers, of course, he is baptizing them with the Holy Spirit. This spirit of holiness which drives out sin and brings holiness. And, of course, is the way in which we are united to Christ. And truly, all believers must be, indeed, baptized in this way. But what about for the unbelievers? Yes, he's going to baptize them with the Holy Spirit in a different way. It will be a baptism of fire in which the wrath of God is poured out on the rebels on the last day. Now, that's one sense in which this can be taken. And Jesus, by the way, is anxious for all of this to move ahead. All this, the whole work of redemption, all that lies in ahead, he is anxious for this to move ahead. We've already mentioned those sinless martyrs in heaven. You know what they say in Revelation 6, 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried out in a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? We say, how could they be anxious for this thing? Well, this is the, the, the work. This is the thing that must happen. This is the completion of these things. And they're not the only ones. Jesus is anxious as well that all this work be done in all those things. He is very patient, isn't he? Very, very patient. And never once did he, did he upend the, the patient timeline that the Father had given to him. And that was always indeed the the temptation of Satan was for him to jump the queue, was for him to short circuit that timeline that he was given. But no, he patiently endured it. But it didn't mean then that there wasn't also a sense in which he was hard pressed and desirous for these things to happen. Well, if there's the sense and the final the final fire that is coming upon the world, and we know that is the end that is coming. As it was once destroyed by water, as the world likes to forget, so in the future it will be destroyed by fire. But there's another way in which he's come to send fire on the earth, and that's by sending out the gospel into the world. And here we think exactly about the way the Holy Spirit came on in Acts 2. And the day of Pentecost had fully come. They were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a, ru- a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. And one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there's a picture then as the, the, the initiation of the sending out of the gospel into the, the world is Holy Spirit in the appearance of fire, reminding us of the nature of what is about to happen. And the effect, you know, the effect was precisely that. Of the going forth of the gospel, it was like a fire. It, it spread from one place to another. You know, you see or, or, or know of these forest fires and just these small sparks. They're not very big, but they're carried by the wind. And they come to some other place that is in various ways receptive to the fire because it's dry and therefore it catches and, and this tiny spark then makes a very, very noticeable and visible difference immediately to the place and land. And then from there it goes off again and from there it goes off again and you see the picture of it as it were taking effect and consuming the whole world. And that is the nature of the gospel. It will be preached. It will reach every corner of the globe. That's why we participate in this great work of world mission. But in this, has there been peace? 
in this going forth of the gospel, indeed, has there been peace? Now, look, let, let me make another thing clear. We said there's a big difference between peace with God and peace with men. And likewise, we need to understand there's a big difference between the, the lack of peace that exists between God's people and the world as a whole and what should happen in God's church. Inasmuch as we have peace with God, we must surely have peace with one another. That is indeed why it is a, 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 a token That this is a genuine church if they love one another. There should not be dissensions among God's people. We should be at perfect peace with one another. And in God's goodness, that is often what we find. But is that what happened in the world as a whole? Hardly. Hardly. That is not the case. In fact, Calvin points out that the only way that there could be peace is if the whole world, with one consent, embrace the doctrine of the gospel. But as a considerable part of the world not only opposes, but fights keenly against it, we cannot confess Christ without encountering the resistance and hatred of many. Again, just like Christ himself. Now, this is no armed resistance like some other religions would imagine. No. The point is, though, that our mere being, our mere preaching the word, our mere believing the truth, our mere being different, so different, is a reminder, isn't it? The world constantly has to smell the savor of what is coming, as they know, they'd like to believe that the world will just carry on as it is. They'd like to forget that the world was once destroyed and will be again. They'd like to forget about eternity. They'd like to forget that there is only one way to salvation, and that is through Jesus Christ. And when they're around us, they have to be reminded about these things, and it's not comfortable for them. And they will do what they did in one way or another as they did with Christ himself. There will be opposition. There will be division. And very often, that even makes its way into individual households. It says in verse 52, For from now on, five in one house will be divided, three against two, and two against three. Father will be divided against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Very sad and all-too-real situation for some who hear this. The reality that that division extends even into one's own household. You know, it's a funny thing that there are all sorts of things. You you imagine your typical worldly-type family. There are all sorts of things which the, the child, the young person, become, could become involved in, and it wouldn't bring any problem whatsoever. They, they could, become, they could become, go, get into cars. They could get into music. They could join some, a singing club. They could join a drama club. They could do all sorts of things that could possibly be in, that they could devote their life. But you know what's going to bring division if they become a Christian? And we have seen that. We have seen parents... Forbidding their children to come to church because of, indeed, this sort of thing. Father will be divided against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Well, you know, in the parallel passage in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 10, I'll just read what it says. Matthew 10, 34. Do not think that I've come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. 
For I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He even intensifies it. He comes, he says, I've come to set these things in motion. This is part and parcel of my mission. Absolutely there will be this kind of division. And he's saying it very plainly to us. But listen, listen to what he goes on to say. Verse 37, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. He's making the choice very, very, very clear. Yes, such a division will happen. But Jesus, and Jesus understands, is how difficult these things are to think about. It's so difficult to endure. And he wants to make sure that the stakes are very, very clear. And the stakes must be clear for us. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Now, Jesus knows of what he speaks when he says these things. Don't forget, by the way, this division was true even of Christ's own human family. Do you understand that? John 7, verse 5 says this, For even his brothers did not believe in him. Jesus said to them, My time, this is Christ speaking to his own brothers according to the flesh, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it. Its works are evil. You know what he's saying? His, his brothers at that point are of the world. And there is a fundamental division between them because of this. Jesus knew of what he spoke. There's going to be division for God's people so long as we're in this world. Now, what do we, what do we say to this, to this reality that there is division. There's not peace, there is division on earth. And that the coming of Christ intensified these things. This age-old division between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And we know that God himself put enmity between these two entities. And so it is true for us. What are we, what are we, how are we to apply these things? Well, for some of us, it's very simple that we need to count the cost. Now, Jesus is in no doubt as to whether the cost is worth it. And I am in no doubt as to whether the cost is worth it. But Jesus would have you to know the truth. He's not going to bring you into the Christian life apart from you understanding that there is a cost. And, of course, we understand that sometimes that involves opposition and division within one's own family. And you should count that cost. Now, I would say in the end, the the cost only makes the reward in the sense of eternal life, in the sense of having Christ, even in the sense of having the family of God around you. What Jesus says, you know, when, when, once again, I I believe it was uh, Peter, he said, Lord, we have left all. What are we going to get? And sometimes I think he's only saying what the other disciples were thinking or maybe what we're thinking. And he says, look, in, in the future, you're going to get eternal life. You're going to get the kingdom. You're going to get all things. You're about to inherit all things. But even in this life, you're going to get lots of brothers and sisters and husbands and, 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 and sons and daughters and, and grandparents and all the rest of those things. You're going to have that family relationship with the people of God. 
But you need to count the cost. It's true. And some others, we need to bear up. Because if you've chosen Christ, you cannot possibly choose to please the unbelievers that are around you. You you can't do it. You can't possibly uh, imagine that you will be at perfect peace with every last person, every last worldly, unbelieving person around you. It cannot happen. You, You just can't do it. And what you need is the courage to bear up under this. Of course, a particular subset of that is in terms of relations that might lead to marriage. And here is where absolutely a clear-headed and, and absolute intentionality is, is requisite. Second Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? It's so very clear, isn't it? What, what sort of fellowship could there possibly be between righteousness and lawlessness? Light and darkness. Christ with the devil. What kind of fellowship could there possibly be between those two things? Why then would any of God's people wish to pursue that kind of relationship with an unbeliever? Now, of course, this is speaking most particularly with relationships that lead to marriage. But, of course, the same could be said with close friendships. Those kind of things of which you can say they are yoked together. You see, they're always together. They're spending lots of time and, and the, the way in which uh, one has influence over the other. They, try to, they look like one another. They talk like one another. That relationship, brothers and sisters, it's not a good idea for believers and unbelievers. If, what is, if you have Christ in you, if you have the Holy Spirit in you, if the root of what you are is that fundamental opposition of the root of what they are, How indeed can you have such a close relationship? You're either, A, asking for for trouble and for a relationship which could not possibly last in the first place, or B, you're indicating that your own situation is not what it should be at all. And we need to be very clear about these things. Should we befriend unbelievers? Absolutely. And and, and Paul uh, Paul in another context in in Corinthians says, look, I told you not to have fellowship with those who claim to be believers but are are living in in godless ways because that's another thing we shouldn't have fellowship with, hypocritical or, or backslidden Christians who are under the discipline of the church. But he's saying, no, I'm not saying that with with people in general because then you'd have to go out of the world. Of course we're going to interact with unbelievers. And of course, that's the way in which they might hear the gospel. That's the way in which they are witnessed. That's that's the point of us being in the world and not immediately having been taken up. But that's different than having close, soul-binding relationships with them. Those things are different. Now, for others, in fact, for all of us, thirdly, I think we ought to have realistic expectations. You know, as much as lies within us, we should be at peace with all men. That is a basic thing, all right? And you must understand that this kind of division, this kind of opposition, this kind of trouble, it is not coming because we're there to stir it up. We don't have to. All we have to do is merely live life in accordance consistently with with the Word of God, and it will come. Again, because we are the savor of death to death. And we're a reminder of some very uncomfortable realities to the world around us. And we need to have realistic expectations. Because if we go into this, like Peter, 
and, and imagine that we, there should be peace on earth. And imagine that we should be it, and our lives should be just smooth sailing through this world until the end. And we will be sorely disappointed, and we will be wondering, hey, what happened here? And that's one of the great lies, by the way, of the health and wealth gospel. And they say everything's going to be smooth sailing for you. Couldn't possibly be the truth. It wasn't so with Jesus. It's not going to be so for the world at whole. It has never been for God's people, and it's not going to be for you. So again, the, the other part of the, the counterpoint to Calvin's quote as he, he speaks of these things in his commentary says, Christ therefore warns his followers to prepare for battle that they must necessarily fight for the testimony of truth. We should have that realistic expectation. We can, in our time in this world, we can have peace with him, but at the cost of peace with God. But if we choose to have peace with God, if we choose to be his people, then we must understand that there will be division. It will be uncomfortable. But it will be entirely and more than worth it. Indeed, it is precisely this kind of division, this kind of warfare, for which there will be everlasting glory and honor in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, as always, come to an end of ourselves as we discuss these things. Lord, even in, in speaking them, we are reminded of the impossibility of, of even making such a choice. We in our flesh would not choose to have this kind of division, certainly not within our own beloved families. And Heavenly Father, we know it is a difficult thing to endure. But Lord, you said that we must take up our cross and bear it. That even as what lay in the future for Christ at that point was the cross and for the whole world, it was division. Thereafter, Lord, so it is with us. But Lord, we know that at the end of these things, there is peace. That truly, Lord, we are thankful for the peace that we can have through Christ. Now we pray, Lord, that all who are not in Christ would put their faith, would repent and put their faith in Christ and be at peace with God. And yes, for the time being, we may not be able to be at peace with all men. Oh, Lord, we are thankful that the day is coming when Christ will return. Indeed, Lord, there will be peace in the new heavens and the new earth. And we pray, Lord, that our thoughts and our expectations would point in that direction and that you would uphold us and enable us to do what we are called to do until then. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.